This past week, over the last seven days, we as a church, and many of you along with us, have tried to go back and both remember and also to, in some ways, rehearse and enter into the last few days of Jesus' life on earth. We started uh, last... um, uh, last Sunday, on Palm Sunday, when Jesus came down off the slope uh, through the Kidron Valley and up into Jerusalem to great fanfare. And then Thursday night, we came and we looked uh, together at the Last Supper, the first Last Supper, and we reflected uh, on some scripture there and uh, listened prayerfully to how God would speak to us in that moment. And then on Friday, of course, we uh, call it Good Friday because something out of the great tragedy of Jesus' death something wonderful emerged. And we discussed briefly that evening um, about how there's a sickness that the Bible describes throughout humanity, and it it touches all of us. And there's only one cure, and that's the reason that Jesus has come into the world. And it's through His sacrificial death that the cure can be known so that a, a real relationship with God can actually be embraced and entered into. And we left Friday night, we actually walked out of this space in quiet to try to sit for a moment with the the feelings of that night, those who were disappointed as first witnesses to Jesus being uh, taken off for His execution. And now we come here on this Easter morning to think together and hopefully to celebrate together the reality that the grave didn't hold Jesus forever, In fact, it was just a few days, and Resurrection Sunday, Easter morning, is what we celebrate today. We have uh, said those words back and forth to each other, He is risen, He is risen indeed. For many of you, I know that that those are more than just words in your mouth, It, it tethers itself to the very depth of your being, because you speak those words and you believe them with all of your hearts. And yet, for others of you this morning, I'm sure that you may not quite know what to do with all of this resurrection stuff. And uh, some of you, when you hear the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead, you may think about that with a raised eyebrow and a puzzled look on your face and in your heart. Others of you might hear the thought uh, that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and you might just say, that's just crazy talk. That's religious fanaticism, that's kind of above and beyond, but yet you sit in a room like this and you look around and you might say, wow, well, these people, I assume, are are fairly intelligent and fairly well-adjusted people, and there are many here who seem to believe that to the very depth of their being. And why is that? Others of you still might be here this morning, and you might like the idea of Jesus and the the great things He taught on uh, ethics and morals. Many of you as parents may have taught to your children, even though you don't believe in Jesus perhaps, but you've taught your children the golden rule to do to others as you would have them do to you. I just want you to know if you find yourself this morning in any of those categories, you're in good company. Because Jesus' very closest followers on that first Sunday morning struggled with some of those very same issues and questions. They weren't quite sure what to make of the statement that Jesus, who had been dead, was now raised again. What are you supposed to do with something like that? Because they were not expecting it. 
They were not eagerly waiting for that moment to happen. It was a shock to them. It was a surprise and it caught them off guard. And they then, as they get moved off of what is normal and comfortable, have to think more deeply about, is this claim that Jesus is risen from the dead, is it true or is it not? Because if it's not true, then the Apostle Paul would say later in the Bible that the whole idea of Christian faith is ridiculous. It's meaningless. And we are to be pitied above all other people if the resurrection is indeed not factual and in reality history. But if it is true, then the question is, how do I respond to that fact? Uh, We're going to read together. Uh, Luke chapter 24. Luke is one of the gospel writers. He also wrote the book of Acts uh, as the history of the early church. It's Luke chapter 24. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them there. If you'd like to use the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, it's on page 964. And don't worry, we're not going to read a thousand pages this morning. We're just going to read about a dozen verses together. Luke chapter 24. We're going to read the first 12 verses. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? And it quotes Jesus. It says, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. Verse 9, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and he ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Peter himself had a raised eyebrow and a puzzled look on his face, not quite sure what to make of this claim that Jesus had been raised from the dead. That is the question today. I want you to know that I don't believe in looking at the Bible that we can really look at these these writings about the resurrection of Jesus as some sort of religious propaganda. Some have tried to say it that way. This movement was beginning, and so they they crafted the account of Jesus' life and His death and His resurrection, and it was written in just such a way to help prompt and promote belief. But I want you to know that the way it is written and some of the details about it really preclude that from serious consideration. One of the realities is that in a first century world, the testimony of a woman, unfortunately, was not credible. It wasn't allowed in a court of law. And so the idea that if somebody was to try to propagate 
this idea that Jesus had been risen from the dead, trying to fabricate, fabricate something that was untrue, they wouldn't have started in a first century mind with the idea that women were the first ones to the tomb and the first ones to go back and report it because it wouldn't have been, in a larger sense, valid or appropriate testimony. Now, we live in a world today where uh, we rejoice that women, largely because of Christian faith, over the centuries have been elevated and uh, promoted and uh, respected and dignified, and that needs to continue in our world today. I want you to know that this, I don't think, could be any sort of religious propaganda because the first witnesses in a first century context would not have been women if you were trying to fabricate something that was untrue. The fact that women were the first reporters really it points to the fact that they're simply describing the facts as they came. And that is to our benefit this morning. They also, if you're trying to fabricate something, you wouldn't list in, generally, the pitiful initial response. These people were so unbelieving. They had such little faith. They had such uh, discouragement that uh, they weren't like saying, oh yes, it's finally happening. Instead, when the body of Jesus is gone missing, they're wringing their hands and they're asking, what is happening? They're not jumping up and down and saying, yes, what Jesus promised is happening. It's just the opposite. They are so confused and so bewildered. And this is not what they expected. But yet, here are the details in front of them. And how are they to respond? And how are you to respond? I want you to know, too, that I don't believe that people in the first century world were easily duped. Sometimes we... Historically, we can be in our, our modern setting and we can look back on history and it's really easy to be in an arrogant view toward those in previous times as if they were uh, some simpleton people, uh, simple-minded, easily swayed. I don't think those are people in the first century Roman world. It was amazing what the Romans were capable of doing and the people who lived in the land. They weren't people who were so crushed with despair that they were ready to believe anything that would, might help them feel better about things. The women were puzzled when they came to the tomb and it was empty. The first believers there gathered in that when they came to report, they responded that it was nonsense. But they couldn't escape the fact that something, something they recognized, something unexpected and unexplainable was happening. That was undeniable. But seriously, seriously, are you telling me that Jesus is raised from the dead? Are you sure His body just wasn't stolen? Are you sure something else didn't happen? You're trying to tell me, I knew He was dead. You see, first century people, they were much closer to death than most of us ever will be. They knew when somebody died. They knew Romans were really good at executing people. I mean, they had mastered the craft. The Romans knew how to intimidate people and how to make people bow to their will. And they did it by fear. And they did it by public execution. And people knew when somebody had died that they were really dead. They knew that three days later a dead person doesn't come back to life. So are you telling me Jesus is raised from the dead? It's nonsense, right? That would probably be your initial reaction, right? That, that would have been mine. That would have been right where I was. No way. 
A little bit later in the story of this chapter, Jesus shows up in one of their meetings. And you know what their initial response was? It wasn't to run over. Say, hey, Jesus, high five. Give me a hug, buddy. That wasn't their response. You know what it was? (gasps) It was drawing back. And they said, I think we're seeing a ghost. They still weren't believing. Later, when Jesus begins to teach them and talk to them about the reality of the resurrection, you know what he says? He says, why are you so disbelieving of what is right in front of you in the actual events? You see, they're filled with doubt. So I want you to know that I don't think we can read this story and think these are simple people who lived 2,000 years ago that were easily influenced, easily duped, easily manipulated into thinking something like this. You see, they too needed evidence to overcome their doubts. And in part, that's what Luke is trying to capture for us. Jesus provides them some physical evidence. Number one is He stands in front of them and He speaks. Right? There's an audible voice. And it's not just one out of 20 who's hearing the voice. They're all hearing it. Right? There's an audible voice that's being heard because it's spoken from a real person with real uh, physical body parts. We know... Another sermon, another day, we know that Jesus' body was glorified and somehow different, but it still had continuity with the body that he, he once lived in and had. But He speaks with a voice. And then He says, look at my hands and my feet. What was He trying to show them there? Did He have tattoos? What was He looking at? Or what were they to see? The scars the wounds, the remnant of the execution that had happened. He said, if you don't believe in the voice, if you don't believe in the eyes that see my body here, look at the wounds. It is I who have gone and been crucified. And then he says, hey, I'll do you one better. you have any food? Yeah, there's some fish. Great. He takes that piece of fish. He begins to eat it. Finger licking good fish. Why? That's such a detail. It would be so easy just to gloss over and think nothing of. But Jesus is trying to demonstrate to them. He's giving them evidence that He really was dead and buried, and now He really stands right in front of them, speaking, demonstrating the wounds, eating the food. If you were able to be here for our brunch this morning, aren't you so happy you got to eat some food this morning? Jesus stands and He eats this food. And you know what? It doesn't just fall on the ground because He's some sort of phantom. It actually goes into His body. Somehow it's consumed. So these believers who are so full of doubt, thinking it was nonsense, they were perplexed. They're now having to deal with the reality and the facts that are right in front of them. And then Jesus, over a series of events, He has multiple visits with the followers, in different settings. He goes and he visits different people. We've seen it already. He visits, or in another uh, gospel, talks about him visiting the women in the garden. There are a couple of travelers who are going from the city of Jerusalem to a neighboring town uh, of Emmaus, and Jesus comes and starts walking with them. It's such a funny account. Go back and read it. He's like, hey guys, what are you so sad about? i got a little extra time. He says, what what are you so sad about? And they're like, are you the only one in this area that has no idea of what just happened? This Jesus guy was just killed, don't you know? He says, no, what things? Tell me about it. I love that. Here's Jesus walking with him. You think he didn't know what just happened? 
And yet he asked him this question, such a self-revelating question. There's another moment when the Apostle Paul describes Jesus coming and appearing to 500 people at one time. And then he says this, when the time that that letter in 1 Corinthians was being written, he says, you know what, if you don't believe me, most of those 500 are still alive. Go and ask them. Go tell them what they saw when Jesus showed up to them. Tell them what changed their life so much. Go and ask them. And then he goes on to say, you know, he showed up to James and he appeared to others and then finally to Paul. Jesus also begins to connect the dots for them. They, um, they weren't quite sure. They weren't ready for this. You know, we stand on this side of history and if you've ever read through a gospel account, you'll see the hints More than hence, you'll see the clear teaching that this is what Jesus had come to do. His execution and being led off and all the events that happened, that wasn't an accident. This was all exactly what God intended because you and I needed His death so that the doorway of truly relating to God can be opened through His death. You see, our life with God is only accessible through the death of Jesus, because that sickness in the, human, in the human reality is so immersed in all of us, the Bible says that we have to have the only cure, and the only cure is the forgiving, saving power of Jesus. And that power was unleashed when Jesus was nailed to a cross, when He breathed His last, and He said, "...it is finished." He was saying to us that His mission was now accomplished because those who would believe in His death and trust in His resurrection would now know what it is to really have a personal relationship with the God of the universe, that He knows you by name, and He wants to hold you by your hand, and He wants to walk with you through your life because He loves you. He wants to hold you in your pain, He wants to walk with you through the sadness and the shattering blows that will come to you. That is the God who loves you so much that Jesus Himself would come and die for you and for me. Jesus begins to connect these dots. He had been telling them. He had been foreshadowing that this was coming but they weren't quite cluing in. So now He's raised and He stands in front of them. And with that voice that can be heard and the wounds that could be seen and the meals that they would share, He would say, don't you remember when I told you? And then uh, a couple of times, Jesus went with His disciples in chapter 9. Jesus said, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. Again, in Luke 18, it says that Jesus took the twelve aside and He told them, We are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock Him, insult Him, they will spit on Him, they'll flog Him, and they will kill Him. On the third day, He will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. They had no category in their thinking for what Jesus was trying to tell them. But now when He stands, resurrected after He was really dead, He goes back and He revisits those teachings. He revisits what He had been telling them. And do you think there were light bulbs going off for them? Oh my goodness! 
You remember those old cameras? I've seen them in movies with the old flash bulbs. You would have one bulb and you'd take a picture and like that because the bulb would burst. You have to change out the bulb for the next picture. I just picture, I mean, if I were with those disciples and suddenly I'm here with the resurrected Jesus and He's going back and saying, remember when we went to this city and we did these healings and I was telling you about what was going to happen. Oh, right. And do you remember when we multiplied the loaves and the fish and the people who were hungry were fed? Now I'm resurrected and I've come to feed the Spirit. Right? These light bulbs just going off. Oh, wow. I get it now. I get it. I may not fully understand, but I see you here. And I believe it's true. And because it's true, they were persuaded by the evidence. We see at the end of this chapter that their response was one of worship and joy. We know that history tells us that their lives were so deeply touched and transformed that they would go and they would, many of them, lay their lives down as a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. They would give up their life not for a lie, not for a fabricated story, but they would lay their life down as martyrs, many of them, because of the reality of their seeing the resurrected Jesus in front of them. And then the church that begins to expand around the world begins to grow. They came face to face with that question of what do you do with the reality of the resurrection? How do you respond? They had to make their response, and so do we. How do you respond? to the idea of Jesus being raised from the dead. You remember Peter's response? The women came and they reported it. And many of them said, it's nonsense. Peter, however, it says in verse 12, he got up and he ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Wondering to himself what had happened. What is your response? Maybe you came today at a friend's invitation, but you're not quite sure about all of this death and resurrection stuff. Jesus being raised from the dead, you don't quite know what to do with it. It's okay. But being the truly open-minded person that you are, you're open to really investigating the claims of the Christian faith for yourself. Really examining who Jesus claimed to be and... Could this resurrection stuff really be true? And if it is true, so what? Well, those are great questions. Last night I caught part of um, an old movie I hadn't seen in a lot of years, The Ten Commandments. I caught, I don't know, several scenes of it. The old Charlton Heston. I remember watching it as a boy. Still one of those vivid pictures when he stands up on the mountain and he's got the two tablets in his hands, you know, and the the smoke is all around him and all that. It's one of the monumental moments in Hollywood history. Well, that was on last night and so fun. About three years after that movie was produced, there was another movie made that also starred Charlton Heston. And it also became one of the great classics of Hollywood. And it's titled Ben-Hur. A uh, re- remade version of it was uh, released uh, last year. Ben-Hur uh, was actually uh, the movie based on a book that was written all the way back in 1880. It was written by General Lew Wallace. Uh, Lew Wallace uh, grew up in Indiana, and uh, he went on to law school, and he ended up becoming a general, commanding one of the Union forces during the Civil War. Uh, when the war was complete, he sat on the jury 
that tried some of the uh, conspirators who assassinated Abraham Lincoln. When he wrote this book in 1880, Ben-Hur, he got a letter from President Grant. And President Ulysses S. Grant wrote him saying that he was so engrossed with that book that he spent 30 straight hours reading it. It was the best-selling book of the 19th century. Ben-Hur. It actually is the result of Lew Wallace's own seven-year investigation into the claims of Jesus and the Christian faith. He spent seven years researching, evaluating, talking to people, looking for himself, asking the question, if Jesus really is raised from the dead, could it be? And if it is, then that changes everything. It changes the way I orient my world. It changes around whom I look for uh, goodness and sustenance and purity in my life. His conclusion, he wrote in his journal, was this, that after this research, that he came to a conviction amounting to absolute belief in God and the divinity of Christ. How might you respond today? Maybe you've been in one of those categories we talked about earlier. A raised eyebrow, a puzzled look. You don't quite know what to make of it all. Maybe you've come in today just because you wanted to be polite. And we're so glad you did. (laughs) But a friend invited you and you didn't know how to say no. And so here you are. That's okay. We're glad you're here. But maybe you've come thinking and assuming that it's all just crazy talk. But maybe you would say, I've never really investigated it for myself. Not truly. I want to give you three books. If you like reading, these books can be found on Amazon. You can have them at your door by Wednesday. Most of you. Here they are. If you're curious and looking more, the first one's a really uh, uh, good book. It's a lighter book uh, by Josh McDowell called More Than a Carpenter. More Than a Carpenter. Another one is The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Uh, It actually has been made into a movie. It was uh, here in Marin County this past week, and uh, you could probably find it somewhere down the road. Um, on video. Case for Christ, The Case for Christ. Lee Strobel also was an investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune, I think, or the Sun-Times, I don't remember. Somebody know? Tribune. Tribune. All right. Um, But he also began his own investigation at the promptings of his wife, and in his attempt to understand, he too became a deep and fervent believer in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. So, A Case for Christ... Uh, is one book. More Than a Carpenter, The Case for Christ. And thirdly is uh, retiring pastor uh, Tim Keller in New York City. He wrote a great book a couple years ago called The Reason for God. The Reason for God. So I just want to invite you, if you've never really investigated for yourself the resurrection and the claims of Christian faith, those would be three great places to begin. And I want you to know, if, if you've been invited by a friend, don't be shy to ask him or her some questions about what uh, you've heard today. Uh, You can also contact the church office. We'd love to begin a conversation with you. If you wanted to explore some of these thoughts some more, that would really be a delight for us. And so with that, I think I'll wrap up. Let's pray together. God in heaven, thank you so very much for your goodness and your grace. We thank you that uh, you are a God who is okay with our doubts and our questions. You are okay when we stand bewildered and puzzled at the things that transpire in front of us. You understand that we will be confused at times. 
you know that you are so immense that there are categories in our thinking where we can't even fit you in. And so I just pray this morning that even if those who maybe have followed you for decades, that today they would be reinvigorated in their trust and understanding and joy at your being raised from the dead. Perhaps if there's one or more today who came not quite sure or quite convinced that Jesus didn't really come back from the dead, but they've never really investigated for themselves, that, that you'd be pleased to guide them perhaps to a resource or a conversation where they can ask some questions to seek some answers. God, you are an answer-providing God, and uh, we thank you for that. But there's no question that's out of bounds for us with you. So we thank you for that. We pray in this moment now, thanking you for the wonder of the resurrection. You are risen. You are risen indeed. Amen.